From that time on, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. This is the Word of God for the people of God. So if you tuned in or were here last Sunday, you'll know we were reading the story just previous to this one in Matthew 16th chapter. In that story, Jesus asked the disciples a question, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the first to speak. And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms his answer as the right one and blesses him and says, you are a blessing and you've been blessed before you didn't figure this out on your own, but God revealed it to you. It's a triumphant moment for Peter. It's an inspiring moment, I think, for the disciple band as they think about Jesus being their leader, the Messiah. And in that case... Peter had given the right answer. He's right in sync with Jesus. He's on track. He's listening. He's ready to follow. But then right after that magnificent moment, Jesus orders them not to tell anyone about this. Biblical scholars discuss and debate about why Jesus would say such a thing. They call these passages where Jesus says to the disciples not to tell anyone the messianic secret. Why does Jesus, after this triumphant declaration that he affirms Peter for giving the right answer that he is the Messiah, son of the living God, why doesn't he want everyone to know? It seems contrary to what the whole purpose and the whole sweep of the Gospels are building toward. The next story, I think gives us some powerful insight as to why. Why would Jesus order them not to speak of this just yet? In the passage we read today, we see what's going on. Jesus begins to describe a very different kind of Messiah than had historically been expected in some parts of Judaism. If you think about the history of the Jews, you know, or if you've read about it, King David won their independence and organized them, and it was a great moment of triumph 
for they were self-governing people. They were the blessed people of God, the chosen people, and politically and militarily things were good, and David's the leader. And I think Peter and the others have visions of who's going to be next, to be like King David, who's going to free us from the oppression of the Romans, who's going to throw off their military so we can be free people once again. And I believe when he's saying, you are the Messiah, he's thinking of just such a triumph. And yet in the very next story, the same disciples, the same group, traveling together, probably the same time frame, there in verse 21, Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. It doesn't sound like triumph. It doesn't sound like victory. It sounds like defeat. And Peter wants none of that. In verse 22, he grabs Jesus and pulls him aside and says, God forbid it. This must never happen to you. You are a leader. You are the Messiah. You have all power. You should have all glory. Bring the kingdom. But for those who are thinking like Peter, or maybe like you and me, there's disappointment ahead. I can remember the first time I really began to grasp what Jesus is talking about in the Gospels beyond growing up in the church and knowing that Jesus loves the little children. That the Gospels at the heart have this story of Jesus going to Jerusalem, offering himself up, freely giving himself over to be arrested and tortured, to be beaten, to be drugged across Jerusalem, finally to be hung on a cross to die. And this was to be the revelation of God. And I can remember thinking, this is appalling. This cannot be right. Jesus is Lord and Savior. How can he be treated like this? Why would God let this happen? What does this have to do with good news? It's a struggle for us to comprehend. It's a paradox, I think. It goes against our natural survival instinct. And yet here it is in the Gospels over and over. It is paradoxical to consider that deep love has suffering built into it. Peter doesn't like it any more than I did. Yet Jesus says it all has to do with perspective and what we're focusing on. Listen to how Matthew records it in verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan or adversary. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
It must have been hard for Peter and the other disciples to hear the rebuke right after this moment of revelation and seeming triumph to begin hearing Jesus talk like this. I have to confess, I like winning and winning big as much as anybody. I have to have God's help to embrace suffering and sacrifice and death. How about you? What is your mind set on? That's what this passage is asking us. What is your mind set on? Is it set on human things and personal glory or on divine things and serving? Is it set on collecting and hoarding? Or is it set on distributing and giving away? Is it set on taking or giving and sharing? What is your mind set on? Jesus says to Peter, you have the wrong perspective. Your mind set only on human things and not on divine things. And then verse 24, Jesus goes ahead to say to his disciples, if any, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? Jesus seems to be saying, Less me and more we. Less collecting and more distributing. Less gaining for self. More serving for others. This loss of the idea that you're at the center of the world is part of Christian transformation. Suffering the loss that I'm all about me and there's something bigger that I'm supposed to be focusing on is part of what the call of Christ is all about. In terms of Jesus, he seems to be saying about himself, I don't have to live any longer. I don't have to have Glory or grandeur in this world, I don't need political or military victory in Jerusalem. I'm going to give myself up. I'm ready to suffer and sacrifice on behalf of others. He seems to be saying it's not so much about profit as purpose. It's not so much about Money is meaning. It's not so much about gaining possessions as being possessed by God and turning one's life over to Christ and saying, do with me as you will. Here I am. Send me. Willingness to enter into suffering and pain with others or on behalf of others 
links us to God and humanity in a paradoxical way. And yet Jesus says, this is the way. This is the way to life. It's a way to life abundant and life eternal. It's transformation. It's conversion. Sometimes we call it being convicted by the Spirit or being convicted by God. And whenever we recognize that love of God and love of neighbor should be at the center, not love of myself alone, it's a transforming experience of turning one's life over to God and saying, do with me now as you will. But when it happens... It expands your consciousness. It expands your world. It expands how you think about family. And expands the love of God alive in the world because now God can work through you in mighty ways. This last week, 14 of us went to McCurdy Mission in Española, New Mexico. It's in the upper part of New Mexico, about... 6,000 feet in altitude. Average temperatures this time of year, they say, are in the 70s. The predictions were that we would be there. It would be in the 80s this year. It hit 90 every day. We're working outside. It was hot and dusty. It's kind of high desert, dry air, lots of dirt and weeds. And we're trying to transform this area of dirt and weeds into a garden area, a rock garden where those who need assistance, those who have suffered trauma in this county that has really high rates of poverty and really high rates of opioid addiction and plenty of hurt and pain to go around can come to this place and find help and hope and counseling. There's something about, for those of us who are middle class and economically secure there's something about going into an area where the material poverty and the struggle and the suffering is more apparent that kind of gets your attention and being willing to leave the comfort of your home and air condition did i mention no air conditioning in the dorms being willing to leave all that really decenters yourself when you offer yourself to God in the name of Christ to serve others who are struggling. But there's also a dynamic that happens when a group of people like these 14 gather together and say, I'll do whatever is necessary, I'll do whatever work is needed, I'm ready to help here or help there. And working together, you, you experience a sense of joy and a genuineness about I am open to serve however God is calling us, however I can help the team, however I can serve these people. I'm here to do it. There's something that's transforming about that when you take yourself out of the center and you pay money to go help someone else. I find every time I do it, it draws me closer to God. living in a culture that teaches us to look out for number one 
to get to the top, to be productive, to gain wealth, to live the lifestyles of the rich and famous, paying money to go help someone else who you'll never know seems contrary to what the culture is teaching us. And yet somehow, even though we go to serve, I always experience it as a humbling experience to have the privilege to serve in the name of Christ. And it renews my faith. Jesus says to the disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? This passage seems to be saying if you're focused on self, your world is too small. If you're interested in deep spiritual living but still thinking only about self your focus is too small it seems to be saying God has something more for us when we're willing to open ourselves to this call of God when we're willing to open ourselves to living in relationship with all of God's children, even those who are poor or dispossessed, even those who make us uncomfortable or stretch us or we find difficult to love or work with. If we're living just for self, the gospel says, that's too small. When I was serving here as an associate pastor, we got a new bishop, Bishop Dan Solomon. He, in the spirit of Methodist, decided to be a circuit rider in a sense. He decided he was going to go to every church in Oklahoma the first 10 days he was here. So he was going from place to place to place and spending just a few minutes. I remember the day he came to Boston Avenue, walked in that door, Dr. Biggs and I and the other associates were gathered here to meet him. He wanted to meet us personally and talk with us, then pray with us. And then he was on to meet the other Methodist. But I also remember after he did that and after he had served here in Oklahoma for a while, he accepted an invitation from the Methodist in Bolivia to go and meet them. And he accepted the invitation and flew to Bolivia and spent a week or two living among the Methodists in Bolivia. When he came back, he told us about his experience. And he said, you know, most of the Methodists I know in Texas, where he was from, and here in Oklahoma are fairly well-to-do. We do all right. But he said, oh, my, in Bolivia... The Methodists are poor. Mostly indigenous peoples have been pushed to the margins of society without voice or influence so much. 
struggling and sacrificing to get by. He said it was inspiring to see people who have so little in terms of material wealth have such gigantic faith, such trust in God. He said he marveled at how they sacrificed and served one another. How they came together for worship and had so much joy and so much vitality in life. He said, you know what? I need to go back. Not because they need me, but because I need them. When he came back from Bolivia, he was on fire. He would talk to anyone who was willing to listen about how great the experience was and how the people of Bolivia had reignited his faith. And just as I was talking about how he realized how easy the focus comes in to us and what we have and what we're doing and that God's focus and perspective is so much larger. Do you feel God's call to serve? Are you willing to suffer and to sacrifice so that God's love might be poured through you? What is your mind set on? Are you trying to save your life for your own gain? Or are you willing to give your life for the cause of Christ? The passage today testifies by, to faith by saying the love of Christ is a suffering love. It is uniting in universal because it goes to the cross. It's willing to endure suffering and loss and pain and powerlessness on behalf of identifying and empowering others. It connects to us anytime we suffer, whatever the circumstances in life that might bring it our way. We can know through the revelation of Christ on the cross that we worship a God who suffers with us, that we can count on a God to be with us even in our times of trial and tribulation and suffering and pain. When Jesus goes to the cross or begins to talk about going to the cross, it's easy for us to flinch and back away a little bit. But hear the call of Christ today that God is with you. God is leading you, and God will empower you even in the midst of suffering. Richard Rohr is a Franciscan priest. He's become a popular author. I want to read you just a few sentences that he's written about this. He reminds us Jesus' starting point was never sin, but human suffering. Once you recognize that everything is broken and fallen, weak and poor, while still being the dwelling place of God, you and me, your country, your children, your marriage, even your church, when you recognize they are imperfect, this actually creates the freedom to love imperfect things. 
In this, he says, you may have been given the greatest recipe for happiness for the rest of your life. You cannot wait for things to be totally perfect to fall in love with them, or you will never love anything. Now, instead, you can love everything. Amen. Thanks be to God.